the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in Real Time. Avi Bernard here with you every Friday from 4 to 6. Very pleased to be joined now by National Politics Correspondent for Politico, Adam Wren. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. So I wanted to talk to you about this article you wrote in uh, Politico for Politico.com, Pence World Poised for a Showdown with Trump. Now, I, I know that you have heard all of this stuff before, and that's part of the reason why you wrote the article. And the article, the headline in itself is kind of funny to me because of all of the things that Mike Pence hasn't done to push back against Donald Trump in the in the past couple years since Trump's fans were trying to kill him. Um, this, it wasn't a simple, you know, a simple disagreement, uh, a break on policy, a shouting match. It was Trump's fans literally chanting, hang Mike Pence. And so I wanted to, to, to have you on the show to talk about your reporting. And uh, firstly, what made you want to write this article? Was was there something, some kind of uh, anecdote you heard? Was there someone you spoke to, or was were you just curious from the from the beginning? Is it because Mike Pence has been kind of making more uh, strong worded statements about uh, how he couldn't have done what Trump wanted him to do and overturn the election? What was it that made you want to write this? Well, I am based in Indianapolis, and I've covered Mike Pence for a number of years. And, you know, he is consistently on the campaign trail uh, calling out Trump for his dereliction of duty, as Pence would call it, when it comes to the Constitution. And so that's sort of uh, why I wrote this piece. Yeah, interesting. And so so you, you've you known uh, Mike Pence for, or you've known of him, and you've, you've reported on him for a long time. And so why this marked change in Mike Pence? Is it just because he's running for president? Uh, not entirely. Uh, you know, Mike Pence had a very sort of defined view of the vice presidency and what he needed to do to, uh, you know, be Donald Trump's vice president. And he, you know, was as faithful as possible to that vision of his vice presidency. And at this point, you know, he felt uh, as he was running for president that it was important for him to, you know, show his uh, support of the Constitution. Uh, on January 6th and, you know, essentially, uh, you know, certified the election uh, results because he felt that was his duty. Right, right. But why why did he wait so long to push back on, uh, to at least to the extent that he is now, uh, in saying that he, he couldn't have, um, you know, done what Trump asked him to do, and someone like Trump doesn't deserve to be president. Someone who who was doing uh, what he was doing, and and uh, he was kind of he was kind of he was he was wasn't really fighting back against all of the hate he was getting. It seems like to me. Uh, so what what sparked this change? He he did get more uh, more strongly in opposition of Trump uh, in the last maybe what I don't know a couple months or so. Um, he, you know, I would say that he essentially, you know, looked at the, the landscape and his role as vice president and saw that it was important for him to, um, you know, enact and support the Constitution. Uh, and essentially, as he understood the Constitution, his job on January 6th was to certify the election. Um, and he is talking about that now. 
Um, he, he had a memoir that came out uh, last year, and really nothing that he's saying right now is it, you know differentiates or is new from his memoir last year. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are paying attention more now to, you know, what he's saying because we're getting close to a debate next week. Mm-hmm. But essentially, you know, he's he's saying the same thing. He's saying the same thing, but he 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 hasn't really spoken out in public. And most people aren't going to read a Mike Pence memoir, but most people are going to hear if he goes on cable news or he, he does an interview with a reporter and says uh, someone like Donald Trump doesn't deserve to be, pre- to be president again. Is that just because, yeah, is it just covering, because he's, he's running now? Or is that just because he, there, there's, more, there's, there's more spotlight on him? No, now? I don't. No, I don't think so. I think, you know, people like you are just now kind of like dialing in to what he's saying. And he's, he's been saying the same things for months now. Okay, well, I'll take your I'll take your word for that because I certainly wasn't paying a lot of uh, attention to Mike Pence. And you mentioned the debate, and Mike Pence said, uh, according to your reporting, that he said he has um, debated Trump thousands of times, but just not in front of the cameras. What What have you learned from your coverage of Mike Pence over the years about any disagreements they had while they were serving together in the White House? You know, I think he, you know, documents a number of these in his memoir. Um, you know, but essentially, you know, when when uh, Donald Trump was, you know, in uh, Europe and sort of like, you know, cont- you know, uh, talked with uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, Trump, you know, Pence was not in uh, at that moment right now. He was not supportive of that. Um, and so, you know, there are disagreements that he's had. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, Pence is essentially, uh, someone who is, you know, sticking to his guns on foreign policy. Certainly, uh, Ukraine is, is an issue right now, uh, that he is, uh, at odds with on Trump. Uh, you know, Trump has said that, you know, he thinks Vladimir Putin is someone who is, uh, you know, at odds with the, the NATO vision for foreign policy, and he's contrasted with him on that. Why do you think Mike Pence decided to run for president? Does he think he has a realistic chance of winning? It doesn't seem like he really has any solid base of support. Certainly Trump supporters don't like him. They 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 think he was treasonous even though that is that is it's the opposite. Um that's it's the opposite of what actually happened. So where is Mike Pence's base of support and does he actually believe he has a chance of winning or and if not why is he running for president? Well, I don't know that anybody gets into the race uh, without believing that they can, you know, be the leader of the free world. I think, you know, Mike Pence wants to present a traditional, you know, conservative view uh, of policy. And, you know, he's trying to, 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 to move the field as much as possible uh, to, to the right on issues like, uh, you know, uh, abortion and foreign policy, you know, the support of Ukraine. And so I think he's trying to influence the conversation. Um, you know, he, he looks at Iowa, which is a state that is, you know, supportive of, you know, evangelical uh, beliefs, and he is kind of a stalwart evangelical, and I think that he can, I, I, I think that he can win there, potentially. Are you saying you think, you think he can win there, or you think he thinks he can win there? 
Uh, I think he thinks he can win there. Okay. So do you do you think that he is that he is right? Do you think that he has any chance of turning this around? Because as of right now, it, it doesn't seem like he has any chance of winning Iowa or or any other state. You know, I, I think that he is campaigning as hard as he can, and I think that uh, it's hard to see. We'll see on Monday. Uh, the Des Moines Register will release their Iowa poll, and we'll see where people are at at this point. Um, but I think, I, I, you know, I think that he could potentially, his super PAC has him in second place right now, and I think he could potentially be, you know, a dark horse in this race. Hmm. So his super PAC has him in second place in Iowa? That's correct, yeah. Uh, is do you think that's a case of internal polling? Because it, it, it seems like he is is probably not even in the top five of 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 polls I've seen or or even heard about. Because you have Trump obviously, and then you have I think DeSantis, and now even Ramaswamy is coming up on DeSantis in Iowa. Um, do you think that that is just a, a case of a camp campaign polling um, bias? Well, uh, I, w- I wouldn't say bias, but certainly this is what his super PAC has in terms of internal polling. And so, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, we we don't write, we don't know right now. I mean, voters are still sort of learning about the field. They're still sort of like figuring out where they want to be. But we do know that Iowa is a state that is contrary, and they, mm-hmm. you know, spend more time with candidates and and feel like you know they are someone who you know vets candidates in a way that no other state does. Yeah, and and speaking of how Iowa spends time with their candidates, they have the the Iowa State Fair, which uh, took place, I believe, last week. And you you as part of your reporting, you you talk about some of Pence's interaction with the voters there. What was what was Pence's interaction with voters like at the Iowa State Fair? That's right. You know, I saw a number of voters go up to him and thank him for what he did on January sixth in terms of certifying the election. Um, you know, it's hard to say whether they were Democrats or Republicans, but certainly they, they praised him. Um, there were a couple of, you know, liberal uh, protesters who kind of trolled him at times at the Iowa uh, Des Moines Register soapbox. But by and large, what I saw was uh, a number of voters who thought that he had done his duty on January 6th. And so he, he most of the voters, there were, there were, there were, kind to him and, and they were grateful to him and, and just a, a few maybe protesters here and there who, who kind of heckled him but did he have any 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 kind of hardcore trump fans or um anyone on the right who who, who really confronted him on on uh on, you know on just on his uh i guess his his quote-unquote betrayal of donald trump uh, not that i saw Okay, interesting. So, uh, how is? And I'm not sure if you've done any reporting on this recently, but uh, as you said, you're based in Indiana and you've covered Trump for years. So, how is? I'm, I'm sorry. No, you've, I'm sorry. You've covered, I, I, Pence. covered Pence. Pence for years. I meant to say yeah. Pence. That was a slip of the tongue. You've yeah. covered Pence for years. Um, how is Pence generally received in Indiana now, his home state? You know, I think he's uh, perceived warmly. I was with him. Uh, the last couple of weeks, he made a stop at the Indiana State Fair a couple of weeks back and had a good crowd, uh, was warmly received. And I was with him again this week. Uh, he got a standing ovation among uh, the National Conference of State Legislatures, uh, the biggest sort of gathering of lawmakers across the country. Uh, you know, they, they clapped for him, stood up for him. 
Um, and you know, he did his George W. Bush impersonation, and he's uh, it was it was pretty good. I mean, I, I feel like you know broadly, he was someone who was you know supportive of. Uh, you know, a number of, you know, lawmakers who wanted to like, champion federalism. And so my, my sense is that he's, you know, widely supported there. We are speaking with Adam Wren, national politics correspondent for Politico. All right, Adam, let's talk about the, the main point of the article, Pence World poised for a showdown with Trump. So what kind of showdown are we talking about? Is this just, was this just, um, was this written before, I believe it was written before, Donald Trump said he wasn't going to be at the debate, right? Was this just in anticipation of a debate, or uh, what kind of showdown were you talking about? Yeah, that's correct. We we uh, essentially uh, wrote this piece uh, imagining that uh, Trump would show up to the debate, and as far as we know right now, he is not showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know, essentially, the Pence camp wants the contrast that they might get from Donald Trump and Mike Pence being on the stage at the same time. And do you think that uh, – do they have any other ways of manufacturing this? Because it looks like Mike Pence is going to qualify for the second debate. He's already qualified for the first. And, you know, Trump uh, Trump is probably not going to be at the second debate either. He might go to the third. But is there any other way that, that Mike Pence is trying to hope, hoping to, to draw that contrast if it's not on a debate stage? Yeah, I mean, I think he is drawing that contrast every day on the campaign trail so far. Um, You know, he is saying that he believes in the Constitution and that he believes that his actions on January 6th were uh, material to supporting the Constitution and that no, you know, person who is, you know, not supported the Constitution should be the president at this moment. And so, you know, I think that uh, whether or not Trump and Pence are on the debate stage at the same time, that they essentially, you know, are are showing the contrast as best they can. All right, last question for you, Adam, uh, and we'll we'll get you out of here on this one. So, since Donald Trump will not be at the debate, and you're you're currently with the former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, you're you're, uh, you're you're frequently with, I should say, the former uh, Vice President um, Mike Pence. Um, what do you think his strategy is going to be at the debate? Is it going to just try to be uh, to get the the second place guy. That's, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of the candidate strategy is to go who is to, is to punch up to the highest person who's who's present, which would be Ron DeSantis. Or uh, what what are you hearing about uh, Mike Pence's strategy for the debate next week? You know, it's hard to say at this point. Um, you know, they are not commenting on what their debate strategy is. But you know, Mike Pence is someone who has had two national nationally televised debates uh, with. Kamala Harris Mm -hmm. in 2020 and with Tim Kaine in in 2016. And so, you know, I think he's someone who uh, views himself as a good debater and, you know, has generally received praise for what he's done on the debate stage. And so, you know, I think he's going to try to reintroduce himself as someone who's a conservative and a Christian uh, and, you know, essentially let let the cards fall where they may. All right, Adam Wren, National Politics uh, Correspondent for Politico. Really appreciate your time this evening. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. All right, take care. When we come forward, we are going to be talking to an author about his experience with Christian nationalism. What is Christian nationalism? This this man grew up, this book is called Youth Group, Coming of Age in the Church of Christian Nationalism. We're going to define that term which has come into focus now 
a lot more in recent years because of the the, the political environment. So let's get into that. Um, and it's uh, it's something that is worth discussing because you might hear the term Christian nationalism and think, oh, you know, what is that? And I think a lot of people don't know what that is. And it's important to know in, in these times. And there are there are more and more people uh, on the right who are Christian, who are who are feeling or, or at least making it seem like they are entitled to their beliefs and others aren't. So let's get into that conversation right after this news, traffic and sports update on KBLA Talk 1580. And it is the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in Real Time. Avi Bernard here with you every Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Whether you're listening on the a.m., on 1580 AM here in Los Angeles or listening on our free app or you're watching and listening to us on YouTube. Welcome. If you want to be involved in this conversation, you can give us a call at 800-920-1580. That's 800-920-1580. And I am pleased to be welcoming to the show now uh, a man who has been a part of Christian nationalism, at least in his upbringing, whether it was voluntary or not, we're going to get into that. Um, but I, I do want to welcome to the show Lance Aximit, author of Youth Group. Welcome, Lance. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so your your book is called Youth Group, Coming of Age in the Church of Christian Nationalism. Uh, I, I want to first kind of get your definition of what Christian nationalism is. Yeah, it's always a tricky subject, exactly what Christian nationalism is, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of different people have different ideas on it. In the book, I kind of use a a definition that is more of a, a cultural um, cliche, cliche, almost a, a cultural clique than it is a actual religious definition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the idea that uh, America, and not just America, but in America that that is a Christian nation and needs to return to being a a Christian nation governed by Christian laws, and that Christianity helps help found it, and it should be essentially run uh, accordingly. Yeah. So uh, there's there's a definition, uh, or at least uh, there's there's someone named Bart Bonikowski, associate professor of sociology and politics at NYU, who spoke of how Christian nationalism in the United States is exclusionary and nostalgic, seeing the nation as going downhill and needing to be recaptured by people who see themselves as its rightful owners, possibly through authoritarian means. And they, they, this, uh, this, um, this piece goes on. This is from, this is from Yale. Uh, while the phenomenon can take different forms in other countries, Bonikowski said the mechanism behind the movements can be quite similar. He said white Christian nationalists take advantage of pre-existing societal cleavages to mobilize supporters, channeling their fears into resentments. So specifically about the first part of that, when uh, when when Mr. Bonikowski, Professor Bonikowski of NYU, spoke of how Christian nationalism in the United States is exclusionary and nostalgic, seeing the nation as going downhill and needing to be recaptured by people who see themselves as its rightful owners, possibly through authoritarian means. Do you agree with that, or do you disagree? No, I think that's, you know, pretty spot on. Um, the idea that 
that America is going downhill is, and, and the culture of grievance is key to Christian nationalism. Uh, it's it's a cultural framework that kind of blurs distinctions between Christian identity and American identity, and it's the idea that there's a certain group that needs to reclaim it and save it. Um, the interesting part about that is that traditionally that has been a um, a group of people that have been like white Protestant Americans, right? That's that's a uh, the traditional group of Christian nationalists. Uh, and lately, there's been a, a expansion into the rest of the world. And when you become when Christian nationalism becomes a more global phenomenon, it's impossible to maintain uh, its strict racial hierarchy. So there's been a bit of a flux there. So what inspired you to write this book? It's obviously a, a subject that's important to you that you have a direct experience with. What inspired you to write the book Youth Group, Coming of Age in the Church of Christian Nationalism? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's... <laughs> I, I titled it Youth Group because when I was reviewing, you know, I, I was... This didn't actually... I was never intended for this to be a book at first. I was just kind of sorting and parsing through parts of my life, trying to figure out um, just why I believe the things that I did. And I landed at one of the most influential... Um, Parts of my life was when I was involved in youth group, my church's youth group. And for a lot of kids who grew up the same time frame as I did, you know, from, you know, in that time between 2000 and 2010, uh, a lot of the evangelical kids, especially in the Midwest where I was, their only real exposure to unsupervised time, all that stuff was, was youth group. And youth group played an incredibly important role in, in creating my worldview and and making sure that I you know, stayed on the straight and narrow that was prescribed to me. So when did you come to see that your youth group was, uh, was, Christian, was a Christian nationalist youth group, or, or is this something that you, you kind of came to the realization much later as you're reflecting, or were you growing up thinking, hmm, I, I, don't, I don't know about some of these ideas? I mean, there were there were definitely times growing up that uh, things didn't quite seem right uh, to me. But again, when it came, it was a much later endeavor of mine um, to that kind of recognize that the Christian nationalism aspect of the evangelicalism that I had grown up in um, was, you know, there, there's actually a, there can be a difference, right? I just thought that Christian nationalism and Christianity were the same thing. You know, and uh, it was very much entrenched in, in the culture that I grew up in. Christian nationalism, there was, you know, it, to be a real Christian meant you were a Christian nationalist. Yeah, I think people hear the term Christian nationalist and they think, okay, Christian, someone who's religi religious, and nationalist, someone who is patriotic. But that's not, actually, mm -hmm. that's not actually the case. But what were some of the ideas that you remember learning about or... or, or you mentioned that if you're not, if you're really a Christian, then according to you know some of the people you grew up around, then you were a Christian nationalist. But what were some of those ideas that were that you either witnessed or were were pressed upon you? Yeah, I think a lot of it was simply the idea that it was our responsibility um, to to save not just the United States, but save the world. Like it was a very much us versus them mentality, and the idea that. Everybody that we came in contact with, um, it was our, our responsibility to try and bring them to Christianity, bring them to um, 
bring them to God in a way. And whenever politics became involved, like why would, if the Bible prescribes X, Y, and Z as being a wrong or a sin, why would we ever um, vote in a way that was permissive of that? Um, and so I think that's where, that's where a lot of the Christian nationalist ideology uh, grows, is, is, is in that area between, like, if the Bible says this is bad, then we should probably do everything in every sphere of influence to make sure that that thing is not acceptable inside of the culture at large. So did you ever encounter any, and you're a white male, I, I believe, right? Yes. Yes, I want to make sure. I don't want to make any assumptions. There are some people who who look white and they have some <laughs> black in them, so I want to make sure. Um, so, um, did you ever experience any any not obviously not yourself, but anyone in your group kind of either being being racist towards someone else or making racist comments or or anything of that nature? Well, I think that's the interesting thing. So, I actually was. I grew up a missionary kid, right? So I was born in Panama and Central America. Um, and, you know, before I was deported from that country because the war at the time, um, I, I ended up back in, in Panama. And as it, it, it was kind of the, there was an intrinsic racism that existed in the culture of missionary work. Um, because it's almost impossible to separate the fact that the missionaries were all white mm-hmm. coming to these other other countries and then giving them the truth, right? So, like, when you have just, if you take everything else away and you just focus on that alone, it's problematic. And then when you add a whole bunch of other aspects of it, you, you come into other problems. For example, the, the missions group that uh, my family was part of was called New Tribes Mission. And um, they recently have changed their names because of all sorts of um, issues they've had. Right. They're trying to re- they tried to rebrand themselves a few years ago. Um, but they had a magazine all the way up until, like, I think, I don't know, 2006 or something, that was called Brown Gold. Hmm. And I think we can, we can all assume, uh, but the whole purpose of the magazine was just to talk about how the missions were going inside of the brown nations. Oof. Yeah. I mean, I think you're describing, yeah. you're describing um, a white savior complex that exactly. um where they where i guess uh, christian white uh, white christian nationalists feel like they have to and you know other religions too feel like they have to go into areas that are non-white because those people need them to show them how they're actually supposed to be living right mm-hmm. do i have that right yeah it, yeah it was very very much the case and it was there wasn't so much um, things that were explicitly taught that way. It was just the culture that existed um, was so pervasive. It didn't really need to be taught. And it was, I remember the first time I was, I was in Wisconsin and it was like 1997. My parents were working at a uh, missionary training camp, which we called boot camp, which was essentially a um, Christian commune up in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. And I met my very first black missionary. um, And I thought that like, he had like he was from the mission field that like he had come back with one of the missionaries like i it just blew my mind like that concept at that time just was so foreign to me because you know white people went to other countries to evangelize it, the, mm-hmm. the the whole concept you know it was just so much inside the culture that that was a bizarre thing to me really really interesting stuff man um i, I want to hear about when we come forward i want to hear about your uh, some of maybe maybe the most uh the most uh, difficult part about 
coming of age in the church of Christian nationalism, as you put it, or maybe the most difficult part of it, or the 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 worst experience you ever had as part of uh, your upbringing in that group. I want to hear I want to hear about that when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. Avi Bernard with you on the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in Real Time. We are joined by Lance Aximit, author of Youth Group, Coming of Age in the Church of Christian Nationalism. All right, Lance, do you have any particular set of uh, memories or any any incident that that took place that that was that was particularly um, painful to you or that you that you look back on and think, man, that was I didn't realize it at the time, but that was actually kind of traumatic. Uh, there's, there's quite a few of those things, actually. Um, there's a lot of ones that, you know, I look back at and laugh, but, uh, they were actually quite traumatic at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, we grew up, like I said, you know, we, we were in Wisconsin for a while at a, at a missionary boot camp and the, I would go to, you know, essentially preschool, but nothing there is separated from the ideology. Nothing there is separated from the, uh, the form of Christianity that existed. So even inside of preschool, I was being taught all sorts of lessons that were quite uh, terrifying to me. So they, I remember one, one thing I have in the book is talking about how the, our preschool teacher was telling us that the, uh, the devil was, was always trying to, you know, convince us that bad things were good and that they could uh, possess anything. So I was actually convinced for a long time that my stuffed animals were possessed by devils. Hmm. Um, I, he also told us about the Antichrist. Like, the end times is a very strong focus amongst evangelical Christians to mm -hmm. this day. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, end times was such a uh, key component of my my upbringing that even inside of preschool, they're talking about how the world was going to end, uh, Jesus was going to come back and essentially murder everybody, um, and that before that would happen, the Antichrist would be there, and he would be somebody that was actually very, very nice, and so we would think he was a good person. So I, I thought my sister and I thought that maybe my dad was the Antichrist because oh, we wow. both liked him. You know, he was <laughs> he was really nice. So we, we we had a very skeptical eye on him for a while. Uh, but yeah, just these these lessons that they would teach the children that in no way were age appropriate or not, appropriate for any age, but like especially for these kids. And we were you know very confused for a very long time. Wow. So I feel like. The end times is something we hear about in mainstream Christianity a lot too, even uh, even in the black mm -hmm. church, um, in you know in the Episcopalian world. Um, we, I hear about that. I hear the end times a lot. The end times are near. How how would you, uh, whether it's regard whether it's you know in regards to the end times or or otherwise, how how do you separate, or how do you or how would you define uh, the difference of just Christianity and Christian nationalism? Yeah, that is a, a very tough one. So I think that inside of, if you were just to say Christianity and how they view the end times, there's a million different interpretations, right? So, you know, the end times and what the book of Revelation is all about and the book of Daniel and all these things, there's there's the room for a actual historic take on who the audience was when that was written and how it was written. Uh, inside of evangelical Christianity and inside of the, you know, mainstream evangelical Christianity, like the biggest books that, I mean, I can ever imagine existing at that time frame were the Left Behind series, right? And that Left Behind series, if someone is unfamiliar, was just a fictional account of the end times. 
And I grew up on those. And, uh, you know, I think that's probably the, the best uh, window into that world. If anybody from the outside is like, what is it that, that these evangelicals really think about all that? Uh, just take a look at those books. And it, it, they're meant to be entertaining and, and uh, just kind of like a Christian adventure story, but they're essentially the idea that it, all, it, it's almost like revenge porn, right? So it's like all the naysayers, the atheists, the, the, and the globalists, you know, all the people that, that evangelical Christians dislike, in the end, we'll get to see them murdered mercilessly. And it wow. makes, it, that's essentially what is, it makes people feel better. It's kind of weird that way, but it, it certainly does in that world. Yeah, so basically, if you believe like us, then you're going to get to go to, you know, to the promised land, and if not, then you're you're going to be um, brutally um, murdered or, or sent to a, you know, a terrible e- eternity in hell, basically, right? Yeah, yeah, it, that's essentially it. You believe the right thing, and you get to go to heaven. You believe the wrong thing, and, and you don't. Or if you just didn't even have the opportunity to hear the right thing, you still... Mm. are going to most likely end up in hell. A lot of the evangelical Christians won't say for sure, because, you know, that's not for them to say, but they believe it, yes. So they believe even if you even if you don't know that you're doing something wrong, if you just, if no one has come to you and enlightened you into uh, the tenets of, of Christianity or Christian nationalism, then just because of your ignorance, you're going to hell. Yeah, because, I mean, there's, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's the the Bible verse that says that even the rocks proclaim God's name, that nature, all of nature mm. should make, should be enough to, to tell people that, you know, God is, uh, is real. So there's enough Bible verses that they, that uh, they like to point to that they can substantiate their points with. So, uh, you know, you, we were talking about white savior um, complex earlier. Uh, it's been, it's been kind of uh, back in focus lately because of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Michael Orr, who is a former NFL player, who, if you've seen the film The Blind mm-hmm. Side, um, who, yeah. yeah. So basically, he was saying that um, you know he, he didn't actually get adopted, and they placed him in a conservatorship so they could make money off of him. And so it brought back into focus all these um, all these white savior films, you know, Dangerous Minds and The Help and Green Book and The Air Up There with Kevin Bacon and you know a lot of a lot of films like that. Do you do you see any parallels there into your your experience? being a missionary kid and, and, and going on many missionary um, uh, excursions, if you will, and, and and the the kind of themes in those movies? Yeah, I mean, I, there's definitely a connection to be made. Um, I think that it's a little, for example, like when, when I was still a kid and, and going to these things, um, and in a lot of the missions, and New Tribes Mission was the second largest uh, missionary sending organization in the world, and I think the largest for the United States. So this isn't some fringe organization either. Uh, they were not allowed to watch movies, oh, like wow. go to movie theaters and things. Mm-hmm. So um, back in the 90s, you weren't allowed to go to a movie theater. Women weren't allowed to address it. So like, the connection, like, yeah, it, it's there. It's definitely a prevalent feel, but um, yeah, I think a movie that actually later on that more evangelicals connected with would probably be uh, Braveheart, actually. Mm, okay. It's interesting. Uh, Kristen Dumay writes extensively about this and how how Mel Gibson and Braveheart became the kind of, like, touchstone for that era uh, of this militant, masculine Christianity um, mm. that became 
kind of the the heart of Christian nationalism in, in the 2000s. Before we get you out here, I got to ask you where we can find your book. Yeah, you can find the book on Amazon. Uh, you can find it at Barnes and Noble. Um, although I would definitely suggest calling up your local bookstores instead of either of those options. So calling them up and asking them if they could uh, order it for you. Why is that option better? Um, I just prefer to support local bookstores than mm. these uh, larger mm. corporations. I, I love that. I appreciate that. And especially in our listeners can appreciate that as there are some, some local bookstores here in Lamert that, that we should and, and could support. So uh, Lance Axman, how can we keep up with you? Is there a social media handle you want to you wanna share? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Accident Lance for as long as Twitter's still around. Um, also, my website is LanceAccident.com. And that's Accident. That's spelled A-K-S-A-M-I-T. Lance, really appreciate your time and your, your, your perspective this evening. No, thank you for having me. It's absolutely a pleasure. Have yourself a great weekend. I'm Avi Bernard, and I am gone.